Now we return to our sermon series looking at the book of Genesis and now into chapter 3 where last week as we entered in we saw things starting to get dark (laughs) both for our first human parents and as a consequence for us as well. So we return there now. Genesis chapter 3, I'll be reading, I'm going to read a couple verses from last week and then move forward. Genesis 3, uh, verses 8 to 15, will you follow along as I read? This is God's holy word. And, and they, meaning Adam and Eve, our first human parents, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God then said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do now ask that you would come near to us through this word. However, we have made our way here this morning. Jesus, at the end of the day, it is you we need to hear from, not the one speaking into the mic. So speak through me, around me, whatever is necessary, that we might know that we have, in fact, heard from the living God himself. We pray these things for your sake. Amen. Well, as, as much as we may, and we live in a time which, in, in which we disagree with others as a society on a host of things today, Certainly don't see eye to eye on everything. There is at least one thing I would make the case this morning that nearly everyone agrees on, whether they are a follower of Jesus of Nazareth or not. And that is that there is something profoundly wrong in the world. Things just can't currently be the way that they're supposed to be. And certainly there are differences of opinion as to wrong and right and where to draw the lines of what is fair and what is just and what is equitable. But hardly anyone, regardless even of their politics, reads their news feed or simply observes the world they live in and thinks things are fine. So let me ask you this, if someone were to ask you this morning, what is wrong with the world today? What would you say? 
Think about that for a moment. How would you answer the question, what is wrong with the world today? Hold that thought for a second. The story is told that in the early 1900s, the Times newspaper of London posed the exact same question in an open letter to many prominent authors, thinkers, theologians, and philosophers and asked for their response. And they received hundreds of responses and essays. However, there was one response that was unique and stood out in its unique, in its simple profundity. And it came from the well-known author and theologian of the day, G.K. Chesterton. He is said to have responded with a one-sentence, two-word essay in answering the question, what is wrong with the world today? This was his response. Dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. That was the early 1900s. Now fast forward to last year when that great modern day theologian Taylor Swift actually got a little philosophical herself and believe it or not shared the exact same sentiment of that response in one of her songs. Now I recognize you may not be a fan of Swift. That's fine. And I won't argue with you if you think she gets way too much media attention. (laughs) But listen to these words from one of her songs entitled Anti-Hero. I should not be left to my own devices. They come with prices and vices. And I end up in crisis. A tale as old as time. And then later, did you hear my covert narcissism that I disguised as altruism? But then the chorus is clear and profound also in its simplicity. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. What's wrong with the world? I am. What's wrong with the world? It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. Not the answers that are usually put forward when people observe all of the brokenness and evil in this life, but answers that I would contend are far more instructive and in fact far closer to the biblical picture of what is wrong in the world still today. Now let me just say as an aside, the fact that I think these are actually among the most honest and truthful responses regarding the fallen reality that you and I live in does not at all suggest that you and I are not sinned against and can and have been hurt by others. It is true when another human being infringes on and dehumanizes your image-bearing capacity and reality, they maintain responsibility in the eyes of God full stop. But 
The fact remains, these answers are informative in how they stand in stark contrast to not only how many today would answer that question, what's wrong in the world today, but also in contrast to how our first parents, first human parents, perceived of what was wrong when God asked them for an account of their actions. Last week, if you recall, we, we saw that God's initial posture towards our, this wayward couple was to seek them out. He went after them. But even then, the first human couple thought they could hide. And so instead of coming with joy at the sound of God in the garden, their waywardness, their sin, causes them to feel exposed and shamed, and they actually tragically run from <laughs> the Lord God, their creator, not towards him. And tragically, that now describes every single human being in our fallen state, this side of Genesis 3. There was a time in my life as a young dad when I would come home at the end of the day and all three of my little boys would come running to greet me at the door. They would hear me coming. Maybe they heard the car pull up. Maybe they heard my feet on the front porch. But they would hear and they would come running. Daddy, daddy, daddy's home. And then one day, that stopped altogether. (laughs) And though it's been a while now, I still remember the feeling and the realization that my children are no longer going to come running for me just because I'm coming home. That was a sad day. And thankfully now I have a dog and he still does come running to me when I come home. First human couple hear their creator moving through the garden and instead of running out and greeting him, they run in the opposite direction and they hide. And so God calls out with a question, where are you? To which Adam responds to God by saying in verse 10 that he hid because he was naked. It's as if Adam thought he was telling God something that God didn't already know. God made him naked. He formed him out of the dust. He brought his wife to him. And that's how they knew each other from the very start. This is not news to God that they were fully known to each other in this way. God was there. God designed it. But notice God's follow-up in verse 11. Who told you? You were naked. My friends, the answer, of course, is no one. (laughs) The reality is nobody has to tell us. We take on and feel the shame just as our first human parents did when we feel exposed. When we have simply crossed even a socially unacceptable boundary. Doesn't even require a particular sin anymore. Though according to Genesis 3, it's certainly a consequence of sin's entrance into this world. Ever since our first parents, the human race has gone into hiding because of our shame. Out of our now fallen sin nature, we try to cover ourselves from each other and we also try to avoid God altogether. But next the text expresses God is one who is like a heartbroken parent who just realized 
that their child had completely ignored their instructions and decided to absurdly do their own thing, thing thinking they knew better. <laughs> God continues in verse 11. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? This is now God's third question in a row. <laughs> third question that he's asked, just a couple of short verses. And in fact, he will ask one more question before he ever makes an actual declarative statement. And as the omniscient God that he, of course, is, he therefore must not have been asking questions out of ignorance. <laughs> Rather, this must have been God's way of trying to draw our first parents into a redemptive dialogue and then into the light of humble repentant honesty about who we truly and really are God is holy and just he cannot abide anything less than his perfect will but unlike we who are parents when we are at our worst <laughs> God does not erratically fly off the handle in reaction <laughs> and response to his children's violation of his instructions. And I don't think that's insignificant here. I actually think it's, it, it's instructive for us in regards to how we interact with and how we speak to and about others who are right now currently living in a way that demonstrates they do not want to have anything to do with God and are longing to avoid him all together. You see, our tendency is to respond in those situations with declarative statements, with claims of truth. We believe that's our duty and responsibility. And while no doubt, of course, there comes a time to declare truth to those who err. So often in the Bible, starting right here in Genesis, again throughout the prophets, and even Jesus himself, when interacting with his image bearer's waywardness, often starts with questions. Questions invite dialogue. Questions seek to create a safe place to honestly consider, look with, within oneself, and evaluate one's ways and one's decisions. Definitive statements on their own are final. <laughs> and they tend to end any kind of redemptive dialogue. Does God have a standard for what is true and right? Of course. Does God know all things already? Absolutely. So I would suggest it's because of those two realities. We who are fallible and not party to all things and all knowledge, would likely do well to learn from both our creator here in the garden, but also from Jesus himself in our interactions with those who are currently attempting to avoid dealing with God. You know, there's a, there's a fascinating and actually challenging passage in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Apparently, the church there in Corinth, Corinth, by the way, as a city, 
was, a, was far more accepting of a wide range of sexual immorality than I would make the case even the world today. Even a city like New York City. Apparently the church there thought it was their duty and obligation to simply cut off ties with their co-workers, with their family members, with neighbors who were living in ways that were in contradiction to what they knew to be God's good will for their lives. Listen to what Paul writes in chapter five. I wrote to you in my previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy of the world or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world altogether. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, and he is guilty of any such things. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Basically said, that's God's job. Instead of calling, cutting them off, Paul says our calling is to pursue them relationally, even intentionally pursuing dialogue with them, meaning most likely asking a lot more questions than making definitive and declarative statements, as important as that will be and necessary when the time comes. But back to our text, even as God continues to draw Adam out of hiding, Adam still avoids God's inquiries into what he has done, and he hides one more time but in a different way. Hear Adam's response in verse 12. There he says, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. In other words, God, this is your fault. You caused a chain of events that led to this point when you created her and brought her to me. Can you imagine the gall and the brazenness of this response by our first human parent? How do I know that God is a patient God? Because he didn't zap Adam right then and there. But notice furthermore that Adam is saying it's her fault too. Whatever the case, it's your fault or her fault. It's not mine. It's not me. As maddening and as absurd as it is, Adam implicates both his closest confidant, that is his complementary and opposite strategic ally and the good creator who made them both. And that's the second immediate consequence of the fall after the internal and inward shame that we all know and experience, the external and outward blame enters the picture. That's exactly our default drive too. When we're exposed, when we blow it, we go to blame shifting too. And we can come up with a thousand reasons why it's not my fault. <laughs> it's not me. And then we blame someone else or something else. Oh, we are, in the words of Jesus, very quick <laughs> to find the speck in someone else's eye when all along we have a log protruding from the front of our faces. 
But notice it's not only a man thing to blame shift. All humans do it. Verse 13, we read, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Both of our first human parents' response, It wasn't my fault. As blame shifters ourselves, we have learned from the best. In seminary, we, Jen and I had three children under the age of six when we started. And there was a point, uh, the second year of seminary, we were having a, a really tough time in our marriage. There's a reason why seminary is sometimes jokingly referred to as cemetery. At some point, she was making the case to me that I wasn't around as much as I needed to be, helping with the kids. And I felt like she wasn't carrying her weight. Now, if you're here this morning and are married or ever hope to be married, please don't do what I did next. Me being the the logical, rational person that I am, I started logging hours. Hours that I was with the kids alone. Hours that she was with the kids alone. And hours that we were with the kids together. Did this for a month. And then one night over dinner, I decided to make my presentation. It was perfectly logical. She was the problem, even though she thought I was. I laid it out. I made my case. She did not take it very well. Despite the logical thought-outness of all of why I thought she was really the one to blame. She did not take it very well. And she shouldn't have. (laughs) But again, that is the irony and the tragedy that the need that is at our core and essence that God himself noted at the beginning as human beings, that need for relational Friendship and even intimacy, certainly with the one that we know as our spouse, but not only them, are now the target of the worst of who we are. I told you it was going to get darker. (laughs) And the blame game comes in all shapes and sizes, all an attempt to make us feel better about ourselves because of our own shame and our own desire to hide. And it's so destructive. Is destructive to relationships. And it's so destructive to Jesus' church. And it's so destructive to the mission of Jesus' church. Now, once again, at this point in the text, perhaps God's reaction to all of this hiding, shaming, and now blaming is still perhaps a bit surprising to us. Because instead of immediately correcting and reproving our first parents, which he will get to in the next section, and we will get to next week, God first goes after his and their enemy and deals with him. Verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring 
and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. Some translations say crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, have I emphasized it enough? God is not fooled. And furthermore, God never sacrifices or diminishes his holiness. And yet, he here, after all of the hiding, the shame, the blaming, he goes after the serpent first. The first curse in all of the Bible is applied to the enemy of God's people. It is neither a denial nor a belittling of the rebellion of his children. The rebellion is clear and must and will be dealt with. But verse 14 shows that God's anger is immediately and firstly directed towards the evil infiltrator and influencer that has helped lead his people astray and that God takes very seriously anyone or anything that undermines the well-being of his people and creates friction among his people and between himself and his people. And so God promises in verse 15 that whereas, yes, there will still be further damage done by the serpent's head, the woman's seed will eventually deal a blow to the serpent's head. The woman's seed will eventually, utterly, ultimately destroy God's enemy. And at the cross, Jesus does just that and he even declares victory when he says it is finished it is accomplished no the final act of the grand cosmic redemptive story is not yet played out on stage but the script most certainly has been written the finale is assured, and it's coming when God will fully and finally and definitively eradicate all our proclivity towards sinful and dehumanizing acts, both internally with us, also out in the world, and will also for all eternity remove the evil tempter and force that desires nothing less than that the God's own image bearers would remain distanced relationally from the love and kindness of their good creator. That day is coming. And it's coming because Jesus, as the second Adam, as the better Adam, allowed himself to be completely stripped and exposed, literally naked before the whole world, allowed himself to be misunderstood beaten and even humiliated on the cross and then even taking on all of the blame, all of the shame, all of our sin, all of the evil and ultimately death itself onto himself and fully extinguished once and for all justice's demand for payment for all that is sinful and evil and wrong in the world. And he did so. He did so. Fully aware of and conscience, conscious of and even because of your sin. My sin. Past. Present. Future. 
and also for everything that causes you shame, causes you to hide, causes you and I to defend ourselves by blaming others. He saw all of that. He knew all of that. And he took it upon himself and dealt a death blow to its power for all eternity. So that when you see him, he looks you in your eye. As the psalmist said, he's the lifter of our head. Why would the psalmist talk about God being a lifter of our head? Because we walk around with our heads down out of shame. Jesus is the lifter of our head, looks us in the eye, knowing everything about you. But because of what he has done on your behalf, says to you, I have gone out to defend you and to crush your enemy. I have even saved you from yourself. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And all of that is yours simply by faith, coming clean, coming out of hiding, and in faith and repentance, admitting who you are as a sinful human being before a holy God. That can be yours. If it is yours, be reminded once again of what you have in this great and wonderful Savior, the better Adam, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that when you see us in all of our sin, all of our rebellion even against you and your holy name. <laughs> you didn't sit back and wait for us to get our act together because at the end of the day that was going to be impossible. You actually moved towards us. You did something definitively in time by taking all of our sin upon yourself, Jesus, on the cross so definitively that you could cry out in your last breath, it is finished. And because of that, we now can, as the writer of Hebrews says, come boldly to your throne. Because there we have a great high priest constantly intermediating on our behalf and beckoning us into your presence. Help us to believe that anew this morning, perhaps even for the very first time, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.